Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Folta, and today we're going to be talking about regulatory aspects of genetically engineered crops. And our, our guest today is Dr. Rob Potter, and uh, from uh, it was the managing director of uh, Robert Potter Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. And Robert, uh, thank you again for sharing your time to, <laughs> to join us at, on Talking <laughs> Biotech. That's so, all. Thanks very much, Paul. It's really yeah. nice to be here. I know we've taken a few chances. Attempts to get this going, but it's good to be finally here. <laughs> Absolutely, to bring in the the listeners mm. to the, the to the joke. It's uh, yeah, w- this is our third attempt. We've actually interviewed uh, uh, Rob twice, and uh, we've had technical problems about midway through twice. So uh, Rob is an incredibly patient man and uh, worth waiting for. So um, oh, looking gosh. forward to that. <laughs> so, no, but no pressure. <laughs> so, so let me uh, just say first of all uh, for the listeners, Rob. Um, has a very distinguished background, as I mentioned, uh, managing director of a consulting company, his co- consulting company, um, credentials and job experience at Cornell University, the uh, International Service for the Acquisition of um, Agrobiotech Applications, Murdoch University in Australia, uh, in, and uh, postdoctoral fellowship in uh, State Agricultural Biotechnology Center. Where was that again? That was the one in Perth in Western Australia. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're, you were a researcher at Norwegian Agriculture University, PhD at Rothamsted Experimental Station, and, and a bachelor's in genetics from Leeds University in the United Kingdom. So that's a really impressive uh, background. And I'm, uh, anyway, uh, thanks for joining us. But Rob, uh, mm-hmm. let's start by giving, giving you a chance to explain something about your career interests, your career vector, uh, what what got you interested in in uh, molecular biology, biotechnology? You know, any anything you want to share about yourself? Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, that's quite good. Um, 
I think actually listening to the way it's described like that, you can see that what I've actually been is uh, is bounced around an awful lot. <laughs> and I think it's I think I've been very fortunate to be able to do that. But I've, what I've really enjoyed being able to do is to follow things that have been of interest to me. And I think that's how I ended up in this in this uh, in this area of regulatory affairs because. You know, yes, I started off with a PhD in plant molecular biology, uh, plant tissue culture. So I was in the field of genetic engineering of plants from, from quite an early stage. But then as you move through this area, you realize that, you know, it's quite slow getting interesting products into farmers. And so bit by bit, I've moved further down the line of working at the lab bench and then trying to work with plant breeders to get things integrated. Uh, my work with, with ISA and my early work at Cornell was really all about technology transfer and licensing. But then the more we got into that, the more we realized that, in fact, a lot of the issues are regulatory. Um, you know, the, the final step, if you like, is getting approvals for, you know, to release these products to farmers. And so that's really why I've ended up, I guess, in this area is one of saying, well, this is the last step we need to do to uh, to get you know, to make these things available to farmers and have them put in the field, because for all of what we do in the lab, it really doesn't do a lot of good for anybody until farmers are, are growing them and using them and hopefully getting better yields than they were before. So that's why I've ended up in the regulatory side of things, and, and it does sound like a very long journey now, but it didn't seem that way at the time. <laughs> yeah, see, regulatory aspects, I, I have to admit to a, a certain degree of ignorance about the area, and, which is why I wanted to interview you. Mm -hmm. And and um, and it's fundamentally important. I know enough about it to know that that ultimately seems to be, I mean, it's biological barriers to achieving useful and important genetic changes. I, I think we scientists find ways around those and overcome mm -hmm. to overcome those barriers. But uh, but the regulatory issues are uh, you know they're they're important to assure the public uh, you know as to the safety of our our the foods in our in our food system. But but uh, they, the the uh, regulatory as aspects can really be um, a uh, significant. Um, hurdle is that is that the best word to use or is there a better I think, word? yeah and I think you have that's a really good word for it I think um, these are hurdles which as developers or, or you know people who want to release a new product have to have to jump before we uh, before we can put new products on the market but I think it's worth remembering that these are actually hurdles and regulations and ideas that the scientists began to develop themselves way back in the the 1970s I guess when we first developed these technologies it was the scientists that first realized that we did need some kind of regulation around this and and a lot of it has been self-regulation and a great deal of the regulation for what we do in the lab is very much a voluntary uh, system whereby scientists follow the uh, the various steps so that you know we can take precautions about what we do and mm -hmm. um, as the products have then become more developed and we start putting them in the market most countries now have regulatory systems which uh, have grown from standard food safety or, or environmental safety and so we have a regulatory system in pretty much every country which involves pre-market review of products before they're released so that we know we're not putting out anything which could be dangerous and I think hurdle is a good word for it because it feels like hurdles we have to jump but at the same time I think they are hurdles which we all appreciate the value of you know, and I can say that working for a lot of developers, we appreciate the, we appreciate. Sometimes we get frustrated by the hurdle, but we appreciate the the value of what we're actually doing in these things, and we can appreciate the need for that hurdle um, to maintain 
you know the, the good products that we have yeah good yeah that's a that's a well stated uh, you know sort of review of the of, mm -hmm. of scientific uh, reasons for it and, and social reasons for the reviews the pre-market reviews so thanks so you know one of the things that i was most interested in talking to you about it and 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 we've we've sort of prepped it briefed a little bit on it uh, previously is is the canadian system and and yeah. um as i understand the canadian system it's often pointed to as as an example of of um you know a, a, a system a regulatory system for genetically engineered crops that is that is uh, more product-based than than process-based, and and so for listeners, th that distinction means the following. So if if a regulatory system is strictly product-based, then it um, then it uh, then it, you you regulate based on the properties of the pro particular product at hand under consideration. Hmm. Whereas a process-based regulatory system would be one that says all um, food products that have undergone this particular process. Um, must be regulated, and so the obvious one is something that is created through genetic engineering or has a genetic engineering component. That's a process, not a product, but that process then triggers regulatory re review. I, I know that's kind of a maybe an oversimplification, but um, help us out, Rob. Rob yeah, how does no, how does that fit? I, th I think you've got it right, but I think the critical the critical words used there at the end were, were the triggering of the review. Okay, um, everybody. Pretty much everyone that's reviewing these products, which involves all countries in the world, really, that, that, that have you know that have a, a, any food safety system, they're still reviewing the products themselves to decide if they're safe to be marketed. But it's really a question of what triggers the review. Okay. Why is it that we look at some products not at others? And this is where the Canadian system is really quite different because they've taken the the step of of um, saying that the trigger is the novelty of the product itself, not the process by which it was made. So the trigger for regulation in most countries is the fact that a product has been genetically engineered. And so you find having to uh, come up with definitions of what we mean by genetically engineered or genetically modified, which is what then decides, do we regulate or don't we? The Canadians said, no, what we're really concerned with here is the novelty, and therefore any product which is novel and again, we have to have a definition of what we mean by novel here, but any product which is classed as novel then needs to be regulated. In practice, what this has meant is that a number of the products which are not genetically engineered, but have been you know, produced through uh, mutation breeding, for example, or some very wide species crosses, they've been regulated in Canada where they wouldn't be regulated in other countries. Mm. So the Canadian system is a little bit broader in the things that trigger a review, although when we get down to the review itself, it's very, very similar. We all, you know, around the world, we all pretty much use the same data and get reviewed in the same way. But that Canadian trigger does make it very interesting, and I think, and it's it's a more scientifically defensible one, mm -hmm. as we've discovered that the actual process of genetic engineering really doesn't do anything terribly different than we can do with, you know, wide crosses and mutation breeding anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so a good example of that, I, I, I dug this out and looked at it a few months ago so I, I may not remember the details but but there was a case out of the that was reviewed by the Canadian regulatory food safety uh, organization which I'm sure I've not named it properly but um, the, the it, it was uh, it, so normal 
coffee coffee grounds are rem- there's a there's a fruit that is that is removed from the surface of the beans and then the beans are roast dried and roasted and and ground and made into lovely coffee so the yeah. fruit part is missing in, in typically what you buy in the supermarket but it, but it can be included in the coffee uh, uh, through the whole process of drying and and roasting and so on and and so now you have a coffee that includes those that fruit as part of the flavor of the coffee that's a novel food substance it hasn't been part of our food supply so yeah. that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with genetic engineering but it it was a good example of what you've described as a trigger for yes. mm-hmm. right for for yes. re, uh, review th- that was completely non-gmo in this case that's great, yeah. And um, Health Canada, which is the, the organization that does the food safety testing in, in Canada, um, they have what they call a novel food section, and they would um, discuss with a developer. In fact, that's one of the, the other nice things I like about, the, I guess, the U.S. As well, as well as Canada, is that when we're developing a new product, we'll often go and talk to the regulators in advance of us releasing it and ask them, in, in the case of Australia, case of Canada, is it novel? Would this fall under your novel food uh, regulation system? And if it is, what data do you need to review mm-hmm. to determine that it's safe? And so the developer of this product would have said, okay, so I've got something different in my, in my product here. Uh, I'll go to the novel foods section at Health Canada and I'll say to them, is this different enough from what's already in the market that you class it as novel? And if so, what data will you need to be assured that it's still safe for, you know, to be put in the market? And so that's what we have is, you know, determination of novelty process, which has been a little bit, um, a little bit ad hoc in a few, for a few years because we, you know, these things always develop. Now it's become quite a bit more formalized with the, with this determination of novelty. But we've always had this system of what we call um, pre-submission meetings okay. where before we actually prepare the dossier and submit it, we'll sit down with the regulators. And in this case, it's usually all three groups. In Canada, we have three groups of you. We get one for human food, one for animal food, and one for an environmental safety uh, and we'll sit together with those regulators and discuss with them uh, what the new product is and what data the regulators are going to need to be able to evaluate the safety and that's a very valuable process because it gives both the developer a chance to to present some background information on it and get some feedback what safety data will be required and also it gives the regulators a chance to see what new products are coming through and so they're that they're ready because there won't be very many of these products where you have a new coffee bean mm-hmm. and so this was probably a big shock to the novel food people yeah, sure. when, it, when it turned upon their desk they're, they're used to a genetically engineered soybean and all of a sudden we have a new coffee bean <laughs> so it gives them a chance to get some background work done before right. the submission arrives so mm-hmm. so so yeah that was one of the things that struck me as as mm-hmm. uh, un- notable about the yeah. Canadian yeah. regulatory system yeah. is this uh, what you describe as pre-submission meetings where you you and maybe representing a particular client but the client uh, as well as re- regulatory officials meet together to talk yeah. about uh, the the product and to help determine whether it's a novel product that yeah. would need to uh, be uh, uh, Described in a submission pack. Regulated. That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's um, although the the novelty process is unique to Canada. The pre-submission meetings are, are also common in the U.S. and Australia. Oh, they're, okay. They're two okay. agencies that are that I'm used to. It's not the same in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's all unavoidable. I think there's a there's a different a different consideration of the industry in Europe. And so while there is some 
discussion between regulators and developers. It's not the same level of, of these pre-submission meetings. And I, I know I have colleagues who do what I do in Europe, and they say it's much nicer in North America where you can actually discuss with the regulators what data they want to see before you put it all together. Developing the, the data, developing this dossier is, a, is quite a long and expensive process. And if you're developing data that really isn't relevant to the safety uh, to the safety review then it's sort of been a waste of time and money to do that mm. so it's often very good to to discuss with the regulators what what data are you going to need to uh, to evaluate safety we can generate lots of data about a product but if it's not going to help you determine its safety then it's it's not really needed yeah. uh, it's expensive for you to make and also it takes a lot of time for the regulators to review so that's another good aspect of this of this pre-submission meeting yeah. to discuss what information is needed as opposed to what is just nice information we have a little mantra which we say we should add only what you need to know not what is nice to know yeah 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 <laughs> so, scientists we can ask a lot of questions yeah <laughs> an, an infinite number so yeah. uh so does I think you've sort of alluded to this maybe in previous conversations mm -hmm. or maybe on this recording, but um, does does that sort of handicap? I mean, I, mean I, I think that novelty does make a lot of sort of scientific mm -hmm. sense, as you as you said, it makes sense what mm -hmm. the Canadian system is built around, but um, it also may sort of handicap. Um, the uh, Canadian product market or products in some way, or, or not not so much. Um. In a sense, it's one of the problems we have is that it's is that in in recent discussions I've been having with a lot of people in the Canadian system, we're we're looking a little bit about how to how to reevaluate some of this. And although I'd never considered that it did uh, inhibit Canadian developers very much, I have heard quite a few people that say that they're uncertain if their products, which are not genetically engineered. For example, if they're a wide species cross or they're bringing in some very different germplasm to work into their plants, they're often unsure whether it triggers the uh, the novelty determination. And if it does, it's such a, a larger process to go through the normal plant breeding that they are inhibited from working in certain areas. And so there are there are occasions I can see where some, some plant breeders will be more wary of working on certain products because they are. Oh, it's so much more effort mm -hmm. if I fall, if it suddenly triggers this novelty that I don't really want to work anywhere close to that, which I think is a real shame because from my point of view, it's a bit of a misunderstanding on their part as to what's involved because they're seeing the kind of dossier that we'd put together for a, for a transgenic plant, a genetically engineered plant. And if you're talking about a wide species cross, yeah. the data that you'll need will be quite different. It won't be quite that level. So... From my point of view, it's a shame that they're misunderstanding a little uh, bit what the process yeah. is. But if they're a little bit unsure about what's needed, then they're going to err on the side of caution and maybe not go down a certain route. And I think this is this, in one sense, really brings out this area of of consistency or understanding what the hurdles are, what the steps are. Mm -hmm. We mentioned a hurdle to jump over. Any hurdle's pretty easy if you know how high it is. <laughs> but if somebody then moves the hurdle or, or raises the bar on you, then you start being unsure. And then it's a bit of a worry. And so I think what we're trying to do, I, I work with quite a few people who are involved in, in um, you know, trying to advise the Canadian government and advise other governments what their regulation should look like. What we're trying to do is to get some real consistency into their 
their, their, their definitions of what is novel and what data is needed, just so the developers have more certainty what it is they need to provide. And I think it is it is a question, and it's always changing slightly. It's never 100%. And so, you know, there are times when you think you know exactly what's going on, and then different questions get asked. But it does make for a somewhat different process in Canada than in other countries. Yeah. And because of that, there, there has been an uncertainty in some developers. Just, just for the listeners who may not know, I, I realize that two, there, we're using two phrases that may not be understood. Mm. One is mutation breeding, which is, mm. um, it, which is a non-GMO breeding technique. It's conventional yeah. mm-hmm. breeding technique, but it involves uh, physically uh, creating lots of mutations in, in uh, plant material with either gamma irradiation or, or chemical mutagens. Uh, it's a non-GMO technique, but it's uh, very it causes a lot of genetic change that's uncharacterized. And then yeah. the other one mm-hmm. you mentioned, Rob, was the wide species crosses, and so that would mm. be a hybridization or yeah. crossing between two species that may be quite um, distinct evolutionarily, but but are close enough that they still can be forced to. Uh, to um, to cross and so again that, yeah. mm-hmm. to produce offspring and that's a non-GMO conventional breeding approach as well. So yeah. so really the the point I think it illustrates is that the novelty trigger is not genetic engineering per se in Canada, but rather significant novelty as you've as you've said. Yeah. So yeah. a significant change and and the the, the, the wording. Gosh, I, I, I hesitate to give it directly because I often interpret it wrongly, but we're talking about either a new trait, a new characteristic in, in a plant variety that's not already been in that species before, okay. or the removal of a trait which previously was in that species but isn't, or a change in a value to put it significantly outside the existing range. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those ones, I think, are interesting. When we think of a new trait, we often think about, for example, insect resistance with some of the genes that contain that express the, the BT toxin, so they're right. resistant to insects, or uh, a herbicide tolerance, which you can put in by bringing in a gene that detoxifies an enzyme. But then the trait in that case is often very similar to uh, mutation breeding, where we've actually developed quite a few plants that are tolerant to herbicides by mutation in an enzyme. And so very often the trait there is is exactly the same, and the Canadians would say it's that trait of herbicide tolerance that means we need to regulate, whereas in other countries, if you've developed the trait by mutation breeding, that's not regulated, but a trait that's developed by genetic engineering is regulated. Yeah. And so that, I think, is what we like to sort of point out the difference in the Canadian system to other systems. And while it's it's scientifically justifiable in Canada, uh, it is a little bit different to other countries. And so we, there are, we, we do need to uh, remember where you are. Mm-hmm. I think when we look at the actual marketing of products within North America, the, the, the NAFTA agreement is such that it's it's pretty much one market for agricultural products, and so it can be a bit awkward to to developers even in the U.S. who don't realise that they actually need a separate approval for a product <laughs> in Canada before they can market even in the U.S. And so that's useful, I think, oh. to, to know to other you know if you if you're developing a new variety using mutation breeding in the U.S., you don't need regulation in right. the U.S. But because NAFTA is a relatively open agricultural market, you may still need approval in Canada. That before we can even market in the US in case some moves into Canada. Yeah, sure. Uh, very interesting. Let's uh, let's take a short break, and we're talking to Dr. Rob Parter from uh, Rob Parter Consulting in Ottawa, Canada, and uh, we're going to talk more about the regulatory systems uh, for genetically engineered crops or other novel uh, 
plant materials, and uh, and maybe we'll even get into some of the international work that you've done as well. So, um, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today, a note about auto wrecks, podcasts, and happy endings. A note to the Talking Biotech Podcast comes from Jenny from Bemidji, Minnesota. She says that she was listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast while driving late on a snow-covered country road. She hit a patch of black ice and ended up losing control of her vehicle, rolling and landing upside down. She was unable to call for help as she was unable to find her phone. But wherever it was, it continued to play the Talking Biotech Podcast. She was trapped there for over an hour, cold but unharmed. Thank goodness for airbags. She wrote, I closed my eyes and listened to the podcast. Kevin and Paul kept me company until help arrived. She was able to enjoy two complete episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast and said that the soothing messages of science made a desperate time much more pleasurable. Thank you for letting us know, Jenny, and proud to be your podcast, Jaws of Life. Share your experiences or interests with us at TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. And now, back to the podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Dr. Rob Potter from Rob Potter Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. And uh, Rob, it's uh, really been interesting to learn about the Canadian system. In fact, I I think I understand it quite a bit better than before, so thank you. Um, I I am very interested in your work in in sort of the international arena, not just in the United States, but uh, most particularly in the developing world. I know you've got some Mm. significant experience in that direction, so let me just open it up uh, for you to tell us something about uh, your work in in, uh, developing countries in particular. Well, I've been um, fortunate. I say a lot of my work here in Canada is is to represent uh, clients who want products approved in Canada, uh, and so it gives me, a, a, you know, a, this idea of okay, I'm working for the developer, putting submissions in. But uh, a lot of the work I've done in the past, um, both while I was at Cornell University and working for a, a consulting company here in Canada called AgBios, was actually um, to help developing countries regulators, so to actually work with regulators in these countries to get uh, a regulatory system functional so that they, their farmers can also take advantage of, of some of these products. Um, and that's been very interesting because it does give you that, that other idea of, of seeing what life is like from the point of view of the regulators and, uh, and the kind of things that concern them. And I think it's, it's very nice for, as an independent consultant, I can work for anybody, but it gives me a chance to see it on, on the other side of this hurdle that we talk about on the other side of the fence. Right. So I found that very valuable work to do as well as, uh, as, well as the, the other side working for the developer. So, um, Brinjal, I think we had, we had mentioned in it somewhere sure, yeah. in the previous mm-hmm. conversation. So, uh, Brinjal is is uh, eggplant, which is a culturally very important crop in uh, Bangladesh and India and maybe some other southeastern countries. Yeah. And you, you've had some experience with, with that one. So, tell us. Yes, tell I us have. I, I was very fortunate to be involved in this in a number of ways. And uh, I, I, um, 
I, I, I will say a lot of this, but really very little of it has been my work, but it's been a, I've been very fortunate to be involved in it. And um, one of the, the real main problems with, with Brinjal is the amount of damage it has from a particular insect, the fruit and shoot borer. It really is a, a very uh, economically damaging insect because if you have even a small hole in a fruit, nobody buys that because they don't know how bad it is inside. Okay. And so you really need to spend quite a bit of time controlling this. And in fact, when you've been involved in seeing what farmers spray on brinjal in some of the South Asian countries that I've been to, you begin to wonder about how much you end up eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's surprising how much you do eat it because it's a very, very important vegetable in, in many stews because it provides a lot of a lot of body and texture to stews. So it's in a lot of them that you don't even realize. And, uh, and so it's a very important vegetable. There's an awful lot of it grown. I think it, in some various people estimate that it's actually the biggest vegetable grown in, in India and Bangladesh and China because of the amount that's put, is put into various stews and very many different types as well, not just the nice shiny purple eggplant that we used to uh, used to hear in uh, in North America. And one of the projects I was involved in was, uh, was a project that involved using one of these BT toxins um, to combat this fruit and shoot borer. And it works extremely well. It's very, very good. I mean, the BT toxins, we know they're extremely good insecticides. They've been used as, as, uh, as spray insecticides for many, many years, and we know they work very well in, in transgenic plants. And uh, a private company in India, uh, in collaboration with, uh, with Monsanto in the US, put this BT gene into Brinjal, and it was extremely successful. However, what they were very concerned with is the fact that, again, another private company coming in with another product, and so they said, well, what we'd like to do is make this available to a, a, a broader audience. And so they were looking to find a way to help uh, distribute this into the public sector, into public sector breeding programs. And the project I was with at the time at Cornell University, we were really looking for ways to facilitate technology transfer from the private to the public sector. And so we, we were able to, to help that deal, really, to make this germplasm available for, for a wider breeding program, not just in the, uh, in the hybrid varieties that the company was selling, but also into some inbred varieties in India and Bangladesh and also the Philippines. And so this became a quite a useful project getting this stuff together. But in fact, the bigger hurdle has been the, the regulatory approval. And so I did quite a bit more work, I think, on the regulatory side of this, in particular in Bangladesh. And that involved a lot of the, the preliminary work, really, which was helping to set up a system whereby you could actually run monitored, confined field trials in Bangladesh with this product. One of the things we, we do with, with most transgenic plants is we have to have some kind of field trial to make sure that we haven't changed any characters that we don't know about. But obviously, we don't want this to be a, a full environmental release. And so we have a system of what we call confined field trials, where we look at the um, making sure that none of the uh, none of the genetic material spreads from our field trial, either okay. as pollen or as seed or anything that way. Mm -hmm. And so that was very successful in Bangladesh. We had a number of field trials around the country, and we trained staff to, to monitor the field trials, and also training the government regulators how to inspect the field trials. And so that's another aspect of it, because again, as scientists, we often go to field trials if we look at what's in the plants, whereas when you're looking to, to decide, has this field trial been conducted 
properly from a confinement point of view, you're actually more concerned with what's around the outside. <laughs> you have to know there's no sexually compatible plants okay. within, a, within a certain distance from your field trial, for example. So there's a lot of working with the regulators there to make them understand what inspecting your field trial actually was. And then the next step is really to then um, work through the system for what, a, what a, a food safety assessment would be and an environmental risk assessment would be for this product in, in Bangladesh or in India or in one of these countries. And I think that was also very interesting because um, most people have learnt uh, these areas of biosafety and food safety from the products that have already been developed in North America. And so there's already a very large dossier of information about the product, often too large because we've had many years of experience with them. And so people have a certain expectation of what it is you need to, to show food safety. Whereas if you're talking about a crop which really is never going to be in North America, it's really going to be a, a product for, for Southeast Asia, for Bangladesh, uh, you want to try to make that regulatory system as efficient as possible uh, and not make this too expensive or, or too difficult to produce because that's something which is going to, if you like, mitigate against new products. Exactly. Uh, it's fine for a Monsanto or you know a large company looking at a very large market in North America to put however many million, 10, 15 million dollars into a regulatory package, but that's a really big expensive package to put together for a product which doesn't have that kind of commercial return in a developing country. And so what we're looking for really is to, is to once again, without lowering the standards over our safety, then what do we really need to know about a product? What we're back to this, what data do we need to understand the food safety assessment as opposed to what is nice to find out about a product? And so a lot of our work in, in trying to do this work that I was involved in in Bangladesh and India was trying to be realistic about what information was really needed and could, and and helping the developer to put together that dossier with that information. Mm -hmm. So that yes, we know we have a safe product, but we haven't then made that made this made this barrier so high that it becomes impossible to impossible to jump. To jump, yeah. So uh I seem to recall reading somewhere BT Brinjal can easily receive 70 to 80 pesticide applications during the course well, of the ground season. Uh, not the BT Brinjal, but the, the non-BT Brinjal. I'm sorry, Brinjal. the non yes. thank you, yeah, <laughs> yes. good, important um, correction. The yeah. non-BT, the way <laughs> and, and, and that's And that's what we really looked at. Um, yeah. Because, of the, again, it, you, you're an entomologist, so I'm sure you understand this, but this particular insect is, is, is quite, um, it's quite devastating in terms of economic impacts. The, uh, the adult lays eggs into the shoot of the developing brindle plant. The larva hatch, and as they grow, they can damage that, that growing shoot, but then they will also crawl out of the shoot and crawl down the plant to any developing fruit. And from ex exiting that shoot and crawling into the developing fruit is often only a day or two. And so if you're looking to spray to kill the insect with a topical spray, yeah. you really only have that period of time from the larvae crawling out of the shoot and crawling right. into the fruit. Yeah. And that's why very often these, these products are sprayed every three to four days. Yeah, and that, and and that, that, course, that limitation, that window, treat, the treatment window, is just as short whether it's a biological 
or an organically mm. certified product or a synthetic uh, yeah. chemical. So, yeah, yeah, yeah anything you're spraying on has this very, very tiny window. Yeah. And that's where an insecticide that's in the plant, which actually is killing the larvae at the stage of, of eating the shoot, <laughs> so that the larvae never actually exit from the shoot to get into the fruit. Yeah. And that's the reason why um, the, the insecticide in the plant, the transgenic plant, works so well against this particular insect. Yeah. Because you, you, you never get any larvae coming out of those shoots to get into the fruit. And it really is a fabulous... I, I say, I've been in the field trials where you look at them and you don't have to look very hard to see the difference. It yeah. really is a big difference. And when we were trialing this, the farmers were, were, were very, very keen. The farmers <laughs> were, you know, when? Now? We want it now. Yeah. And of course, you, you're then trying to say, no, we really need to have a regulatory system in place so that this can be a, you know, a, a, you know, a proper release. I mean, the farmer's saying, but we want it now and we know it's safe. And you're trying to say, well, yes, we do know it's safe, but we really need to we need to have a regulatory system as well to, to put it together. And I think this was this was often a, a bit of a double-edged sword. You want to get it through as quickly as possible so the farmer can get the benefit. And so but can you have to realize that, that the value of getting a developing, you know, developing a regulatory system is also very important as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you make a good point. But uh, yeah. So the BT Brinjal um, heads in Bangladesh, has I, the, the sense I get from reading is that it's sort of the cat's out of the bag. It's it's yes, you know yes. it's it's and the the um, the Ministry of Agriculture has approved that, so it has been an approved product there. That has been I think it's probably two years maybe Something now. Like I've not, yeah. not followed up in the last year or two. It's been I, I I've not been involved with the project three or four years now, so it's nice to hear this on the ground. Yeah, it's still held up in India, I think. Mm -hmm. But again, that's because their regulatory system in India has been a bit held up. Um, they. It, it's one of the things that, unfortunately, at that level, we end up into a very political level. We've gone beyond the side of it now. We're into the political. And I think that's been the issue in India. Um, I think we should be close to, to getting through in the Philippines as well. I'm hopeful that – I haven't heard anything out of the Philippines for a while, but I'm hopeful that it will be, that it will be useful there. So um, yeah. and, I've and, got fingers crossed knowing how good it is for the farmer. Yeah, and, and, and so just, again, to reinforce this point, it's, it's good for the farmer and mm -hmm. economically it's good for the environment yes. when yeah. we can mm -hmm. reduce pesticide use, and yes. it's good for consumers. I mean, it, it really um, – you know, the examples like this I, I think mm -hmm. are very – uh, important as a, as a plant pathologist because it's yes. the same thing. Mm -hmm. If we can reduce pesticide use through any genetic technique that's safe, and, and certainly there are many, many choices, um, we, we, we should. Um, so. Yes. And this is the one with the brinjal in particular because after it's been sprayed, people then often picking the fruit. I mean, brinjal is a fruit that's, that's right. picked as a, as a, you know, and so literally uh, many of these zeticides we know in, 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 in oh, well, that, that you spray them and then it's like 14 days before you go into the field. Yeah. Yeah. And farmers in India and Bangladesh are and then picking them tomorrow and selling yeah. them in the markets. Yeah, reducing <laughs> so pesticide you, use yes. <laughs> is good for the workers, the field yes. workers too. Very good yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, Rob, to this discussion before we uh, well, I, close? I'm, I'm, as you can probably hear, I can carry on talking for a long time. And I think yeah, it's think, been great. It's it's been a great opportunity to to explain a little bit about about what the role, I think, of, of scientists are in, in this regulatory arena because it's an area which I don't think a lot of people know too much about. So we, we hear a lot about biosafety, uh, but it's often couched in terms of terrible things that are happening and terrible things that could go wrong rather than the practical aspects about, well, how is it we do do a risk assessment? How do we how do we do you know what 
what structures are in place and how do we follow them to to make sure we do have safe products out there and so i think it's very nice to be able to to talk to hopefully your listeners will also find it interesting and uh, maybe want to follow up on some of these areas because i think the the practical areas of working through a regulatory system are onerous yes but they're not impossible to do <laughs> you know these are hurdles we have to jump but yes they are jumpable hurdles and we do know how to how to do really good risk assessments you know we we've had these products in the market for well over 20 years now we haven't had a problem with a with with a, a bad product getting through the system so we know that we're able to do this safely and we can get good products out to farmers to to help them help them produce better crops yeah wow good well i've i've certainly enjoyed our discussion and and i'm sure our listeners as will will as well so so thanks once again rob uh for joining us today on the talking biotech podcast and uh yeah really appreciate your time oh thank you very much it's been, I, i've enjoyed it so it's been really good fun <laughs> good well thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast follow us on twitter at talking biotech write a review on itunes and tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people i'm paul vincelli and thank you for listening thank you for listening to the talking biotech podcast Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.